As we continue our time through the Gospel of John, this morning we come to John chapter 7, starting at verse 53, so just the last verse of chapter 7, and then the first 11 verses of John chapter 8. So I invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read. And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him and sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Well, if you're looking at your Bible and if you look at marginal notes, different Bibles will have different uh, ways of marking out this passage of Scripture uh, in, a, in an unusual way you might find. Some will put brackets, some will put an asterisk uh, and tell you that uh, this, this uh, passage of scripture is not found in many manuscripts. Um, and so I'm, I, I won't tell you what your Bible might look like, but you'll notice some sort of a marking like, that marks this off and says, um, maybe this passage shouldn't be in the Bible. I don't usually talk about issues of what we call textual criticism, which is in other words, the, the analysis of the early manuscripts, but I need to take some time just to put it in perspective. Again, let me remind you, when the Bible was written, say by John, or maybe he was dictating it to a scribe, that was very common, it was handwritten on parchment, or um, possibly papyrus at times, but it was handwritten and then it had to, when it was copied, it would have to be copied by hand. And when you copy, you know, uh, little mistakes can creep in. So when, when, it, when it was first written, first put on, the t on paper, it was without error. Then uh, copying errors could creep in. And again, if you were to take something, you write yourself a letter, write a letter, and then I ask you to copy, make 100 copies of the letter you just wrote, and I don't mean put it on a copy machine, press 100, go get a cup of coffee and come back and get the sheets. But in other words, if you're going to hand copy it, there's going to be little, little things that sometimes you'll reverse words, skip a line, uh, get a, change up a letter. And that's what most of the, when we see errors in the manuscript copy, that's what it is. Uh, for example, should, I've mentioned before that one textual issue is should one of the New Testament books end with amen or not? Some manuscripts say yes. Some know. That doesn't change anything. Sometimes the word ours is, is, is replaced by yours. And again, it doesn't change things greatly. Here, a whole passage of scripture is brought into question. And the earliest manuscripts that we have, the earliest copies, we don't have the original writings by John and Paul or Moses, but we have copies. The earliest copies that we have don't include this portion of scripture. Uh, the earliest copies that we have go to the 5th centuries. That would be in the, 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 the 400s. Um, and that would be, and, but the great majority of copies include it. Uh, again, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. So some say, well, the earliest manuscripts are the closest to the original. They're the most significant. And so it's not in the, it's not in the scriptures. Two witnesses to that that really speak to me in this is one is uh, Jerome. Some people call him Saint Jerome. He was a uh, part of the Catholic Church, but he 
translated the Old and New Testament into Latin. He wrote what's called the Vulgate. That's the official Bible of the Catholic Church. Uh, any, English, any translation of the Bible from them is based on the Vulgate, not on the Greek and Hebrew. When he translated uh, around the year 400, he made this comment. Uh, in, a, in the Gospel according to John, in many manuscripts, both Greek and Latin, it's found the story of the adulterous woman who was accused before the Lord. So in the year 400, he is saying, I found many manuscripts, many older manuscripts that include the story. So he is a, is a witness. There were manuscripts then that he saw that we don't have. Another one, is, interesting testimony, is Augustine or Augustine. So Jerome, he, he's in Bethlehem area when he's writing, saying that, because that's where he did his translation work. St. Augustine was in North Africa. And, and, and here's what he says. He says, certain persons of little faith, or rather enemies of the true faith, fearing, I supposed, lest their wives should be given impunity in sinning, removed from their manuscripts the Lord's act of forgiveness toward the adulteress. As if he who had said, sin no more, had granted permission to sin. So Augustine, writing around 400, is saying, people removed this passage from the manuscript. So he's saying he's aware of the, of the event. He's saying it's in the, the best manuscripts. And those manuscripts that don't have it, they cut it out because they thought, well, this is going to make people feel like they have a license to sin. Does that make sense? So here's my point. Around the year 400, we get... Two witnesses separated by quite a distance, North Africa, Israel, are saying they are aware of many manuscripts that tell us this is there. So they haven't survived today, those earliest manuscripts. But I would say there's good support for this being in the text. And secondly, or thirdly, fourthly, another point I'd like to make is that virtually everybody... Even those who say, it's probably not in the Gospel of John, still say, but we think it's an authentic event. It just, everything about it rings that this is authentic. So I'm going to go ahead and preach it as, as in John, but, but as an actual event from, um, from, the, from the life of our Lord. Again, I, I normally don't like to get into those kind of things, but you'll see that come up, and I hope that gives you some understanding. So... Let's look at the text. It says, we're told that everyone went to his own house in verse 53, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, chapter 8, verse 1. This is after the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. So the feast is one, this is one of those great feasts where all, the people, all Israel is supposed to gather in Jerusalem. At the end of the feast, they go home. So for a week, they've been gathered in Jerusalem and living in tabernacles or booths, uh, shelters to remember their 40 years wandering in the wilderness and living in shelters and and so they come in jerusalem kind of reenact that and now they've gone to their homes jesus didn't go back to galilee instead we're told he went over to the mount of olives if you look at a map of jerusalem you cross over the kidron valley right over to the mount of olives it's it's a short walk uh, did he and so some have suggested that he again just lived in a shelter uh, there in the Mount of Olives, maybe in the Garden of Gethsemane. Apparently he was given free access to that uh, privately owned uh, region at the bottom of the Mount of Olives. But also on the, right over the crest of the Mount of Olives is where the town of Bethany is. That's the home of uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And that's apparently the place where our Lord often uh, would live when he was in Jerusalem. I guess I should remind us that Hilton and uh, Motel 6 did not exist in the days of Jesus. Because they had no electricity, they couldn't leave the light on. You know? uh, so, but there was no, it's the, so people, there were some inns back then, but usually inns were the last place you wanted to be. And so uh, the more common thing is you would open up your home in, for, in hospitality, and, and he had dear friends right over the, top of the hill of Mount of Olives and that's most likely where he went and stayed during much of this time because the next six months a lot of it will be spent uh, in this area. He leaves for a little bit but 
So, but he, was, he went over to the Mount of Olives. He didn't go back to Galilee. He stayed in the region. And so in the morning, he, um, he came back into the temple. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple, verse 2, and the people came to him and he sat down and talked to them. So we'll see this at different times in the Gospels where Jesus comes into the temple and sits and teaches. By the way, early in the morning, that word early is related to the, the idea of dawn, sunrise. So first light. Now we might think, boy, that's an awfully early time to go to a, hear him teach. Many of our students think that as they go to school in the morning. Boy, it's awfully early. But, but remember, this is the people that don't have street lights and that sort of thing. They tended to, when the sun's up, we're out and going. When the sun's down, you know, the day's over. Um, it was a sad time in human experience. There were no devices to, to look at when it was dark outside. So, but anyway, so early, but no, it's his first thing in the morning he would gather. I notice it says he sat and taught. That, that was standard uh, teaching style in the Hebrew world. You would stand for the reading of scriptures. And we sort of, we see that in the book of Nehemiah. We like to, it's a way of honoring the scriptures. And so we stand for the reading of the scriptures as we have the call to worship. But so in the synagogue, they would stand as the scriptures read. And then the, then the, the rabbi, the teacher, would sit. Kind of like saying, um, now I'm going to explain to you what we've heard. He, he sat and taught. This isn't uh, maybe the proclamations and the crying out that we saw during this, the Feast of Tabernacles, but he was teaching. And what did he teach? Oh, I don't know. John tells us he said so many things that I can't record, that there's, there's, there's no space. But to me, this must have been an incredibly sacred moment where they, they gathered, this crowd had gathered and sat and were listening to Jesus open the scriptures. We're told in Galilee, when he would preach, they would say, no one speaks like this. No one speaks with such authority. Even remember when the guards were sent to arrest him, they came back to the, the greatest teachers in Israel and said, nobody teaches like this person. We couldn't arrest him. So can you imagine what it must have been like there in the sacred quarters of the of the temple, Jesus sitting there and just unfolding. It reminds me of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember, jumping ahead six months after the crucifixion and the resurrection, and, and they kind of give up and say, well, we thought he was Messiah, we messed up. And so they're heading away. And there's been rumors of women seeing angels and they're thinking, oh, it's desperate. And as they walked, Jesus came along, didn't show them who he was. What are you talking about? Are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's been going on? And then he, he reveals himself at the, as they sit to eat. And here's what they said to each other. Now, Luke 24, 32. Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened the scripture to us? In other words, it's saying, wasn't it? As he was, as he was explaining the Messiah from the scriptures, how he had to suffer and die and rise again, didn't it just speak to our hearts? That must have been what was happening in this temple. I just think it must have been a, an incredibly sacred moment. I, I, I can see the disciples just treasuring every word. And, and I can see the disciples looking around and seeing the eyes and saying, some of these guys are getting it. They probably looked around and said, uh-oh, some are angry. But, but what a moment it must have been. Suddenly, it's all disrupted. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and they, they set her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Now, I want to start with that last verse 6 for a moment and say, what, what were they doing here? They weren't coming because, oh, we've got a really hard issue here. Let's go to the teacher. The disciples would do that at times. Boy, this is a tough one. Master, what, what, do, we, what do we say here? No. They come to him and they say, teacher. That's like saying rabbi. Um, but, oh, you know, they kind of set him up. Oh, 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 great expert. 
We have a real conundrum on our hands. But we're told they said this testing him that they might have something for which they could accuse him. So they chose this very public moment, lots of witnesses, right here in the precincts, the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees, you know, that's the, those were the, like the, mainly the rabbis. The scribes are those who were professional writers of scripture. They were experts, and with that, experts in the scripture. But these are two religious officials and leaders coming and challenging him. But it's a challenge. It's a test. It's a trap. I've, I've seen this, and maybe you'll see this sometimes, and someone's giving a, a, a lecture presenting Christ or some aspect of the scriptures and their reliability, and there'll be those that are going to ask these questions. Eh, frankly, I saw this a lot in school, sometimes even in seminary. <laughs> Where, where students would ask questions, and you could see they're not asking that to learn something. Some of them were asking to show off. Look at all I know. Uh, some were asking to try and you know, trap the teacher. I, I remember one time I was asked to do some substitute teaching for a professor, and, and, I, and, I, and I remember as I prepared for the lecture, I had to be ready for that because it was going to be, let's catch the professor time. And so you had to think of every question they might throw at you and how you come ready for the answer. So, so that goes on, or, or like again, public speakers, politicians, it's the gotcha questions, or the look at me questions. Uh, that's the spirit here. It's, they're looking for a gotcha. The trap has been set. The woman they brought was caught in adultery in the very act is how they described it. A couple things sound a little fishy right there. First of all, we're told it's a trap. But notice in the very act, and yet, Where's the man? Kind of suspicious here. Something. This. This is. It's all a setup. Um, and 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 they're 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 trying to say, look, we, we've got the witnesses, we've got the evidence. There's no question she's guilty. That's that's all. The first thing I think of is, um, well, present your witnesses. No, it's you know, it's like that thing. Trust me, she's guilty. No, no, that, that, those two words, uh, something here, I'm not going to trust you. But anyways, their whole thing is, oh, yeah, we've already evaluated the case. She's guilty. They haven't had a trial. And in fact, they haven't, this is kind of a, right from the beginning. What are they doing making a public display without having established guilt before court? They didn't bring her out of the court and say she's been found guilty. And so this is, everything about this is, um, wrong, unethical. It's a trap. It's conniving. They're not concerned about her guilt or, or about the sacredness of marriage. It's all meant to stumble and catch Jesus. She's just a, a tool. They're using her. No heart for her or for the Lord's law. It, it, it's all to get Jesus. They said to him, Teacher, this woman's caught in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such, such should be stoned. What do you say? Again, they, without evidence, they said, We want you to pass the condemnation. We're, we'll skip over the trial. You announce the sentence. Of course, the first thing, if, if it were serious, Jesus would say, well, if, he were, if it were a genuine situation, he might say, let's talk through the, let's, let's step back a little bit. Walk through the facts, if you would. No, it's, it's, a, it's a setup. They want him to decide the penalty. It's a trap. Because they feel like either way he goes, they've got him. If he says, you're right. Moses says, stone her, kill her, execute her. He's now broken Roman law because the Romans said they alone had the right to execute. So if he says, execute her, they could go straight over to the governor and say, this guy wants to break the law. Now it's a Roman problem. He's off their hands. If he says, no, don't obey Moses, 
then he's a heretic. And the crowd's going to say, this guy doesn't believe the Bible. And so they're thinking, we got him. We've got him. Any answer he gives, we've got him. Remember, it's just like the, remember the situation with the tax? When they came to Jesus and said, what do you think? Is it right for Jews to pay a tax to Caesar? Should we pay a tax to our oppressor? If he says no, he's calling for tax evasion. He's a criminal. Give him to Rome. If he says yes, he's, he loses popularity. Certainly the zealots who say we should revolt against Rome. But everyone says that something's wrong about paying a tax to our oppressor. We got him. He'll lose his life to Rome or he'll lose the crowd Remember how Jesus handled that? Matthew 22, verses 17 to 22. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay tax to Caesar or not? Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. And so they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Now see, this was, this was a sticking point. The coin had an image of Caesar. To the Jews, that broke the law. You know, the rabbis said, if you make an image of a man, that's making an image that's forbidden in the Ten Commandments. So they did not allow, like if you go into the ancient synagogues, you would see no picture of a person in all their art. If they wanted to pick a person, they might show just a hand. And so what he's saying is, you faithful Jews who want to obey Moses, Every, every one of you has a pocket full of idols. And so he says, show me the coin that, that's in question that you want to treasure. And they hold it up and says, whose image is this? Caesar. Oh, you're carrying in your pocket an image, an idol of Caesar? And then he, he tells them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar. This looks like Caesar printed this. It's his. Render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, and to God the things that are God. This coin has Caesar's image. Give it to him. You bear the image of God. Give yourself to the Lord. But here's the point. Once again, back they, they, here's, that was another test. They thought, we, we can't fail on this one. And Jesus went to, went to a heart issue. You know, what's most, who's important in your in, you know, in your heart. Where's your loyalty? Well, here again, here's the law. Do we, are you going to obey it or not? And so we're told Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Now again, I mentioned on Wednesday night, you wouldn't believe the amount of space that's been put into what did Jesus write? And there's lots of answers. Some of them are very compelling. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to you know, tell you, oh, he wrote, this is what he wrote, this is what he wrote. I've never seen it said, but it wouldn't surprise me if you went to Jerusalem up to the Temple Mount, if someone said, come over here. I found the place Jesus wrote. And it, you could still kind of read it in the dust. <laughs> it seems like that's how these, these things work uh, over there. Like they, they can take you to the brook where, uh, you know, David picked up the five stones to fling at Goliath. Well, if you, and, and you could pick one up and bring it home. The joke is that apparently every other night a, a, a truck comes in with new stones to, to fill in the ones that were, replace the ones that were picked up by the tourists. So, so I don't know. I'm not saying I've ever heard someone say that. But, uh, but everyone wants to say, what did he write? If we're supposed to know what he wrote, John would tell us. The key is he was stooping down and writing. Did he even actually write words? Or did, was he drawing pictures? Was he working out a geometric uh, problem? Or was he just moving around? I think the key thing is he was giving them one of those kind of bothersome silences. You ever ask someone a question and they just kind of, they don't answer right away and you're, you know, they thought they got him. But I think he's just kind of not purposely not responding. Um, by the way, I think in passing... I think we can learn from our Lord in this. Sometimes we feel like every question deserves an answer. Jesus didn't think that. 
So, so he's pausing. He's not giving them an answer right away. I've seen over some struggles, and particularly it seems like people in some, I've seen some believers, very sincerely intentioned, will get into online debates. And they will, you know, they'll, they'll go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth with this Bible critic and spend hours and maybe some questions, but they'll go research an answer and give it back. And the guy has another question, is back and forth. And it seems like no one ever gets convinced. But the person asking and challenging, they don't really want answers. It's like when I've confronted, uh, you know, heretics, false teachers, apostates, whatever you want to call them, the cultics that come to your door and, and they want to tell you that you're wrong about the Bible, you're wrong about the deity of Christ, etc. As soon as you, you know, when they ask a question, as soon as you start answering, as soon as they see you've got an answer, they don't listen and say, oh, let me think about that. They jump to another of their favorite texts because they're not there to listen. These people weren't ready to hear what Jesus had to say. And so, and so, and they didn't come with an open heart to receive. And so he didn't waste his time. What did he say? Don't cast your pearls before swine. So a good reminder to us, you don't need to answer every question. But he, he had a long pause. One of those pregnant pauses, we can sometimes say. A, a troubling silence. Maybe to give them a chance to think to make them wonder, to catch attention. But again, their whole point in asking the question, they don't really want to hear his instruction. They're, they're not saying, help us to understand. It's an attack. It's a trap. Uh, I'm enjoying right now reading, listening to reading, audibly reading a book on the life of uh, Abraham Lincoln called With Malice Toward None. And uh, it's really interesting to hear about what life was like in the days of Abraham Lincoln in the early 1800s. You know, how the, the roads were dirt and muddy and, and sometimes filthy. And, and even in the major cities, uh, hogs rooting in the road uh, of town kind of reminds me of... Anyway, um, but... But one of the things that's kind of stunning is just how vicious the politics were. They would, uh, it was so much filled with personal attack and, and, and absolute lying. Now, interesting, Abraham Lincoln, he was known, he truly was known for his integrity and his honesty. Um, if he said something, he, he believed it, he followed, followed through with it. But so much of politics was just vicious. And people would, would spend all their time attacking the person rather than dealing with issues. Boy, aren't we glad those days are over. <laughs> you know, I've been bothered in modern times just how much of that, where it's all about personal attack and, and deception and misrepresenting. Well, 200 years ago, guess what it was all about? Personal attack, misrepresenting, dishonesty. It's, it's, politics was dirty then, and, and, and tragically, we're coming back to that. But, what, but, but that's what was going on 2,000 years before. It was personal attack. They weren't there to learn. They were there to trap. They were playing dirty politics. So they set them up in a public setting. Jesus was silent and writing in the dust. And so we're told that when they, they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And then he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So notice he doesn't answer the question. Basically say, you want to stone her? You want to execute her by, by stoning her to death? Um, okay. Let him who is without guilt... Now, by the way, this is one of those verses that people know and quote from the Bible, isn't it? Let him who is without guilt throw the first stone. Again, I see what I have seen as I study the Gospels of our Lord. When someone asked him a question, he didn't just hear the question. He heard the heart. And he speaks to the conscience. 
I struggle with that so often. I just hear the question, I answer the question. Jesus does so much better job of hearing what's going on in the heart. Back when I was in, in high school, I, I was tutoring some children in a family. And one time I remember I was there and I was just coming back. I was right after school. I went over and was getting ready to tutor with these kids. And the father came in and they were doing all this acting up. And, and, I, and it was, I remember noticing he said, I hear you. I hear you. And so I started paying them attention. Notice he wasn't saying, I'm hearing your question. All this acting up they were doing. He says, I, okay, you want my attention? You've got my attention. And I thought, oh, this is a wise man. He, he, he doesn't just react to what they're saying or doing. He said, okay, you, you know, I, I, hear, I hear you, but he wasn't, I'm hearing what you're saying. He then addressed the heart issue that they were bringing to him. Such wisdom. It was striking to me to see him in action in that way. Jesus here doesn't answer their question. He answers their heart. He heard the intentions of their heart and he speaks to their conscience. You're here to condemn the guilty? You're all about guilt and God's law? How about you? Are you guilty? Can you stand as one innocent before the law to condemn the guilty? Let the innocent condemn the guilty. He speaks to their conscience. J.C. Ryle, I've mentioned him. He's got great uh, writings and his work on the Gospel of John I really enjoy. He says this, Conscience is a most important part of our inward man. He plays a most prominent part in our, it plays a most prominent part in our spiritual history. It cannot save us. It never yet led anyone to Christ. It's blind and liable to be misled. It is lame and powerless and cannot guide us to help to heaven. So be careful. The conscience, it won't save you, but it can, it can make you aware of sin. Yet conscience is not to be despised. It is the minister's best friend. When he stands up to rebuke sin from the pulpit, it is the mother's best friend when she tries to restrain her children from evil and quicken them to good. It is the teacher's best friend. When he presses home on boys and girls their moral duties, happy is he who never stifles his conscience, but strives to keep it tender. Still happier is he who prays to have it enlightened by the Holy Spirit and sprinkled with Christ's blood. What he's saying is the conscience is something planted by God in every human heart. Jesus is appealing to their conscience, and they respond. But I think he teaches us something. He doesn't just you know, answer their question. He speaks to their heart, to their conscience. Our friends and neighbors who have yet to know Christ, they have a conscience. They're aware of their sin. Oh, they may cover it up, they may deny it, but in their heart of hearts, they know their guilt and sin. It's, it's, they have a conscience. And so he speaks of the... Uh, uh, Ryle tells us, learn from this. Parents, teachers, as we deal with people, speak to the heart. Discern what's going on in the heart and speak to that. Now notice how he does it. It's kind of indirectly, doesn't it? He doesn't say, I know your black, evil, dirty heart. He, sa he just says, well, if any of you is without sin, then you're entitled to judge her. He, see how he kind of indirectly speaks to them? And so he tenderly, gently, but effectively speaks to the heart. And I'm challenged by his example. Too often I, I go, I, I, I stick to the surface questions. I don't hear the heart where that statement or that question is coming from, and I don't speak to the heart. And maybe what I need to do is spend a little time 
doodling in the dirt. In other words, don't be so quick to answer. Take a moment and think. <laughs> when I was thinking about this, I remember, I've mentioned before, I was a witness one time in a criminal court case, and the district attorney said some things to me. One thing he said is, you're going to hear lies in court. Don't let that bother you. We wouldn't be here if someone wasn't lying. <laughs> I thought, boy, he's got to have a a hard attitude to deal with that all the time. But, but he said, now I'm going to ask you questions and let me ask, or, or you're going to be asked questions, especially by the other fella. Do, do me a favor. Anytime he asks you a question, don't answer it right away. Pause. One, that gives you a chance to think, but also that gives him time. I need time to object. So any question, don't just say, oh yeah, just get pause and then answer. And so sure enough, it was just like Perry Mason sometimes. I object. But but there's a wisdom in that sometimes. When someone says something, pause, especially maybe if it triggers an anger point, pause, and maybe ask the Lord, help me to hear that. what's going on in the heart. Don't just react to that dumb or, or mean statement. What's going on in the heart? All we could learn from our Lord in this. He spoke to their conscience. I, I, I read of an example. Have you ever heard of Daniel Webster? Uh, he was a great politician. In the days of, of, um, of um, Abraham Lincoln, by the way. And, and, and I read this from um, D.L. Moody. He said this, The great attorney, orator, and statesman Daniel Webster was such an imposing figure in court that he once stared a witness out of the courtroom. Apparently... Webster knew the man was there to deliver false testimony. So he fixed his dark, quote, dark beetle-browned eyes on the man and searched him out. According to the story, later in the trial, quote, Webster looked around again to see if the witness was ready for the Inquisition. The witness felt for his hat and edged toward the door. A third time, Webster looked on him, and the witness could sit no longer. He seized his chance and fled from the court and was nowhere to be found. So he was such a, a, the Webster was so amazing in his ability with people. He could just look at him and make him feel guilty. And that guy was there to bring false testimony. He just kept looking at him in a way the guy just snuck out of the courtroom. He was dealing with the conscience. May God give us the grace to, to speak to hearts. They came to convict him of sin, didn't they? They came to convict Jesus of sin. They left convicted of their own sin. They wanted to convict Jesus. They wanted to convict the woman, kind of. They walked out the convicted ones. Notice Jesus didn't name their sins or attack them. His was much more gentle and indirect. Some have said that, well, I'll go ahead and tell you. Some said, Jesus wrote their name and their sin in the dirt. That's what he was writing. <laughs> um, he took a very indirect approach. He let their heart convict them. And they walked out just like the man escaping Daniel Webster. They left. Oh, wouldn't it be so tempting to say, to, to follow them with some comments, you snakes in the ground. He didn't. They slithered away and, and he let them. And he didn't then speak to the crowd. You see what? Jesus was, uh, he was interested in the heart, not winning. He wanted to win hearts. Verses 10 and 11. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman. Now, I mean, there were people around, but none of the accusers that had shown. Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? When God asks a question, he doesn't need information. Right? So Jesus is asking the question here. He's asking her, look around and speak. Is there no one here to condemn you? And she answered, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Some are troubled by this. And may, some think, well, that's why we have, we've got to get these verses out of this text here. It's like Jesus is condoning sin. Notice he doesn't say she's not guilty. He's just saying, I'm not going to pass judgment on you. But we're already told about that in John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. 
In John 3, 17 and 18, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. He said, I didn't come to condemn. That, t- that day's coming when I'm going to judge the world. This isn't that time I'm coming to redeem. To offer forgiveness, to to accomplish forgiveness. And so the question is, did this woman believe in Jesus? Can I give you a couple clues? What did the rabbis bring, when they drag her into his presence, what do they say? Teacher, what does she call him? Lord. Wouldn't it be the most natural thing to call him what the rabbis called him? Teacher? Well, she says, Lord, there's no one here to condemn me. And he tells her, go and sin no more. If if, if that's Jesus' answer to sin, just straighten up your life. You know, a lot of people think that's what the gospel is all about. That's what Christianity is all about. Go to church and stop sinning. That's not the gospel. The gospel is find forgiveness in Jesus Christ through the the cleansing blood of the cross. And so when Jesus says, go and sin no more, that's, that's not the gospel. And yet Jesus preached the same message John the Baptist preached. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. If he if he cared about this woman, wouldn't he say to her, Woman. And again, that's not a derogatory term. He calls his mother that. That's a tender term. Woman. Wouldn't wouldn't the kindest thing in the world be, why don't you repent? But instead he says, sin no more. Why? Jesus knows the heart. I believe he knows her faith is there. And her repentance is there. In the light of his presence, in the light of the situation, in hearing our Lord, I believe she's turned to him for faith, in faith and repentance. And so what Jesus is saying is, repentance is demonstrated in our behavior. Remember when people came to Jesus, came to John the Baptist for, um, for baptism? And he said, it's a baptism of repentance. Now, now John sometimes was a little different in how he approached people. Remember, he said, you brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes in the grass. What are you here for? Baptism of repentance? What did he say in Matthew 3, 8? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. You say here you want the, the baptism of repentance? Show it. He's not saying earn your salvation, but he's saying show it's genuine. And to this woman, he's saying, I believe she's trusted in him and, and she's turn, turning in her in her. She's repented. She's turned from her sin. So he's saying, stop sinning. That's what he's saying. Live out your faith in obedience. As I thought about this passage, it occurred to me, these scribes and Pharisees have done this woman a great service. They brought her to the Savior. Oh, it was horrible. It was horrible to be caught out, to be dragged through the streets, to be made a public display. But she met Jesus. I've read the testimony of those who have been caught and held captive by terrorists. I remember one who was describing just how horrible it was. And yet it was there that he met Christ as Savior. And so you know what he said? I'm so grateful that I was a prisoner to terrorists because that's how I met Christ. Some have met Christ in the time of great sickness. They realize their need, they realize their mortality, and they cry out to the Lord. And so that sickness becomes a gift. These these evil-hearted scribes and Pharisees did her a great favor because they brought her to the Savior in a time of great distress. 
if you are in a time of great distress may I, and, and have yet to meet the Savior, may I say, welcome the distress if it will turn your eyes to him. If you as a child of God are going through a difficult time, see it as an opportunity to draw near to Christ. If someone you love is going through a time of great hardship and great distress, pray for them that this will be a time where they'll look up and see the Savior. This dear woman, this guilty woman, in a moment of of horror, of public display, met the Savior. She was dragged to, to his feet and she walked out standing straighter than she had in a very long time forgiven by Christ personally. Well, some thoughts as I look at this passage as we bring it to a close. See what the heart of unbelief is like. It will attack Christ any way possible. Sometimes it it will use legal suppression. Here I'm thinking about governments and states and nations that try to suppress the expression of faith like arresting Jesus having Rome deal with him in our day cancel culture is a phrase we hear more and more uh, faithful followers of Christ are, are being cut off uh, from public expression the, the heart of unbelief will respond to the gospel and to Christ that way notice how our Lord again deals with people he speaks to the heart God help us to do the same. But notice too, he speaks to our hearts. Don't fall into the trap of the scribes and Pharisees and and only look at the outside. Christ wants a heart that's tender to him. That's open to him. That's responsive to him. And then as he sent her on her way, True faith is a repenting faith. Repenting faith shows itself in its actions. That's why James would say a a faith without works is dead. It's not a real faith if it doesn't show itself. We're going through a time of of great revival in Texas right now. Have you noticed that? Our lawns and shrubs are reviving. And some of us have looked out over fields of brown and wondered, will these dead bones yet live? <laughs> Can life come back to this? And you know what? Isn't it been amazing? The dead are rising, is rising green. <laughs> it's, there's, in other words, what I'm saying is, I, I look at some of that and thought, is this, is this all dead? The green tells me it's alive. We're watching some trees, aren't we? Are they gone? How will we know? We'll look for the green. We'll look for the fruit. We'll look for the evidence of life to know that there is life. True faith is a changed heart. And that changed heart will produce evidence. Maybe not immediately. Some of these trees... We won't know until spring or so. And we'll wait and see. Some will even say, well, give it a year or two. And after a year or two, it's time for the shovel and chainsaw. And let's, let's do more, something better with that piece of ground. But true faith will show itself. And so that's a challenge to us. If you have a saving faith in Christ, is it showing? And and again, when we're looking for someone, and if we have to make a, a thought, is someone there, uh, a potential mate, is someone, is that child that might truly know Christ? Watch for the evidence. And if there is no evidence, take time to watch. If it doesn't show up, then assume it's not there and, and share Christ. A minister, a pastor, uh, was stopped by a traffic cop for speeding. Can you imagine that? Shocking. As the officer uh, was about to write the ticket, the minister said to him, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. 
Turned out the officer was also a believer. He handed the minister the ticket and said, Go thou and sin no more. (laughs) So both of them had been reading their Bibles. I've been praying in my own heart and then for this time in John 8 that we might be like that woman that as we come to this text and see Christ sitting here and teaching that we might see his heart and be drawn to his heart of mercy and love and compassion. There might be turning to him in, in faith that has not been there yet yet to believe in Jesus Christ see him and turn to him. For those of us who know him as Savior, like I said, that woman that walked out, she walked with a, a, a lightness of step, a straightness of back. And you know what I think would happen? Instead of hiding her guilt, I don't know if she made it out the gate of the temple area before she grabbed someone by the arm and say, can I tell you what just happened? I met the Messiah. He forgave me. Father, I thank you for this time to be in the presence of our Lord, to hear his teaching. Father, as he sees our hearts and speaks to our hearts, Lord, may we see his heart and know him for his heart. And Father, too, may we learn from from what we've seen of him. Help us, Lord, to deal with people with hearts of people, to hear their hearts, to see their hearts, to speak to the heart. Lord, we could never do that without your grace. And so I pray your Holy Spirit's enabling. And we give you the glory, Father, for the kindness of your mercy in Christ. For it's in his name we pray.